Hey guys, it's Lindsay from Sirens of the Supernatural, and I'm here to bring you our first Sunday Scary episode. And if you're anything like me, you know that Sunday is the last day of our weekend before our new work week starts, and I like to quell some of my anxieties by relaxing and listening to scary stories, maybe in the dark with some candles. So our first episode ties in with uh, Friday's episode about sirens, what are they, mermaids, all that good stuff. This is quite a different take on mermaids. I think some of you guys will be thoroughly creeped out. So this is called They Fish for Mermaids in Pudgy Village. I found this on Reddit when I was looking for mermaid encounters, true stories. Now this one's just a story. It's not a true story, but it is very, very spooky. So let's get into it. It was supposed to be a family vacation trip. We were in Pudgy, a small fishing village on the southeast coast of South Korea. We stayed our rainy summer days at a tiny two-room cabin with our local guide Mina and her mother, whom we called Mrs. Kim. Mina was a sweet young lady who went to the village high school with a grand total of five students and insisted that we don't call her country with the South part attached because Koreans are all one people and the villagers couldn't give a damn about what politicians said. Mrs. Kim spoke a small bit of English, but most of our conversations went through Mina. We had chosen Pudgy instead of Seoul or Busan or even Jeju Island because I thought it would be a quaint little retreat from the bustling haste of city life and because my husband Eric wanted a place where he could finally teach James how to fish. On the day we arrived, James complained about the size of our homestay in the way that nine-year-old boys tended to, but he grew quiet when Mina and Mrs. Kim carried a short-legged table laden with our dinner out from the kitchenette. Fish, rice, seaweed broth, Mina said as she set down the table and sat cross-legged on the floor. It's the quintessential meal. Don't need much more than that to be happy and healthy. The fish was a giant grilled yellowtail, one for the whole table, long and plump and crackling at its silver skin. As we ate, Eric raved about how fresh the fish was and how perfectly tender the white flesh had turned all the way through. James struggled with his chopsticks. It was my first time picking apart a whole fish like this, but Mina and Mrs. Kim taught us how to pluck out the cartilage, holding the fins in place, and where to watch out for tiny thorn-like bones hidden in the meat. When we had eaten our way to the yellowtail's backbone, where rows of thin, delicate ribs spread over the remaining half of the flesh, Eric grabbed the fish by its tail and started to flip it over so we could get to the other side. Mrs. Kim's eyes widened and she hastily stopped him, barking something in Korean. Don't flip the fish, Mina translated. Eric quickly let go of the fish and let it flop back onto the plate, looking mildly embarrassed like he had offended someone at the table. Why not, he asked. It's bad luck, Mina said. If you flip over a fish on the plate, tomorrow the waves will flip over a boat out at sea. James snorted, and I shot him a look. Mrs. Kim muttered something that Mina didn't bother to translate. We watched as she snapped the backbone of the fish at its head and its tail with the tips of her chopsticks, and then lifted the whole thing out, a string of white needle bones like a fine-toothed comb. When you're out here, you learn the ocean is as ancient and indifferent as any god, Mina said quietly. Maybe you'll see for yourself. We need all the luck we can get. The next morning after breakfast, Mina and Mrs. Kim walked us out to the beach. 
Lined up 10 or 20 yards from the rocky shoreline were half a dozen tarpaulin canopies and underneath them, baskets of freshly caught fish with cardboard price tags propped up next to them. Wrinkled and weather-beaten villagers cleaned the fish with deft strokes of their boning knives. When we walked by, they looked up from their work, stretched out their limbs, and called out what I assumed were greetings. We were close to the tail end of the small fish market when Eric perked up. Whoa there, he exclaimed. James, Emma, look at that. He pointed to a stall where a row of apple boxes had been set up and covered in crushed ice. Sitting on the bed of ice was a massive black fish, easily as long as I was tall. It had shining scales the size of pennies, a long tapered tail that fanned out into bony spines at the end, and more fins on its body than I had ever seen on any fish swimming in an aquarium. Like it needed extra pairs of limbs to propel its giant body through the water. When we walked closer to it, I saw that its gaping mouth was like that of an anglerfish or some other grotesque deep sea creature, disproportionately large and filled with rows of needle-like teeth. Its bulging eyes were milky white. What is it? Eric said, leaning over the thing and carefully inspecting its ugly maw. I've never seen anything like it. That's no surprise, Mina replied. It's endemic to Pudgy. We've got a few odd species of fish only caught in the waters of this little town. This one's called Eniogogi. In? Eniogogi. One of our more common endemic fish. They must have caught it last night. Do you eat it? Yeah, pricey though. You want to try it? How pricey, I interjected. And this thing is huge, Eric. Oh, don't worry, Mina said. It's sold by the half kilogram. The first cut is the most expensive, though. You'll get the finest meat, but then the rest of the fish doesn't keep too well in the sun. I wasn't exactly sold on eating this ghoulish sea monster. And James didn't look too thrilled either, but Eric happily took out his old leather wallet and started haggling with the old man behind the stall through Mina. The next minute, we were watching the man take a long, thick slice out of the soft belly of the fish that he then skinned, washed, salted, and wrapped in clear plastic before tossing in a bag with some ice. First catch of the day, Eric said, proudly holding up the bag. With Eric's curiosity satisfied, we headed for the wooden docks on the shore where several small fishing boats were tethered to posts with lengths of rope. Mina and Mrs. Kim led us to one of the boats, a white one with blue painted insides and some Korean characters stenciled on the bow. Mrs. Kim took her seat at the steering wheel and Mina went around the back and started the engine. You drive the boat yourselves? I asked. Of course, Mina said. My mom's a great driver. All widows in Pudgy know how to drive boats and catch fish. We got in the boat and Eric handed James his first fishing pole. Mina sat down next to me and opened up a compartment near the back of the boat, and as we puttered away from the shore, she pulled out a long black contraption that looked unsettlingly similar to a hunting rifle. It's a spear gun, she said, cracking a smile at my apparent discomfort, for emergencies. Emergencies? Hey, I want a spear gun, James cried, waving his fishing pole. Trade with me, Mina laughed. Not a chance, kid. Mrs. Kim drove us out to open waters and the lukewarm sea breeze. Mina opened up a small matchbox filled with some kind of grub and helped Eric and James bait their hooks. We spent the afternoon fishing. The catches were easy and surprisingly sufficient to entertain James for hours on end. The flopping of the fish and our growing collection of young bass and yellowtails slowly becoming a game. 
I watched as James and Eric competed to catch the biggest fish until Mina covertly handed me a bundle of fishing line with a giant orange worm skewered on the hook. The 13-inch bass I managed to pull up with it dwarfed the competition. In the early evening, we returned to the cabin, made a feast of our haul, and gathered around the short leg table. As much as we were eager to taste the fruits of our labor, more than anything, we were curious about the thick steaks Mrs. Kim made out of the strange Enyogogi fish. After a quick sear on the skillet, the fatty red flesh gave off a mouth-watering scent. It's like the best tuna, Eric said through a mouthful, worth every penny. Where do you catch it? I asked. Same old sea, Mina said, but unless they're juvenile, they only come out at night with the other odd sea creatures of Pudgy. We have special boats that are strung up with tons of LED lights because they're attracted to the light. They're pretty rare, but catching an Ineo is a rite of passage for every Pudgy fisher. Have you caught one? Nah, too young for that experience. It's pretty harrowing. Night fishing is harrowing in general, really. can can really mess you up. Harrowing? My mom's caught one, though, she said proudly, way back when we still missed my dad. Sitting at the far end of the table, Mrs. Kim quietly picked the bones from the piece of bass on her plate. For the next few days, we fished and ate fish and sometimes sat on the beach while James tried to skip the smooth gray pebbles on the waves. Rain was fickle and often we had to don plastic ponchos and taste the salty ocean mist until the clouds drained away in minutes' time. At night, when the air grew cooler and drier, we took walks on the shore and watched the fishing boats far out on the ocean, glowing with strings of white lights suspended above the deck. Two days before we were scheduled to leave, Mina brought out a small grill and told us we would have a barbecue on the beach. We carried the grill and the day's fishing haul to the beach, and Mrs. Kim added a dozen scallops and a fresh cut of beef from the neighboring farms to the heap. In the wind and the humid air, it took a long time for the charcoals to smolder, and by the time we had anything to eat, all of James's eager excitement had turned to a starved crankiness. When we placed the first flat fish on his paper plate, he used his spoon to scrape all the flesh off the top side of the fish and, pointedly glaring at Mina, grabbed its tail and flipped it over. James, I chided, you're not supposed to flip the fish. It's a stupid superstition, he said. I'm hungry. Do what Mrs. Kim taught you to do with the ribs. It's easy. It's stupid. Mina caught wind of our conversation and stared down disappointedly at James' plate. Mrs. Kim said something and clucked her tongue. I told James to apologize and he grudgingly muttered a few words. The next day, the clouds at sea were darker. I told myself they were just the benign rain clouds we had seen all week, but I couldn't shake the unease. I wasn't really a superstitious person, but as we puttered out in our little fishing boat, I kept thinking back to how Mina had told us flipping a fish on the plate would make the waves slip a boat out at sea. Okay, so there is a train coming, and if you hear the horn of the train, that's what it is, because I kind of live close to the train tracks. An hour or two into the afternoon, the direction of the wind changed, and Mina and Mrs. Kim exchanged a few words in a grim tone. Mrs. Kim started the engine on the boat, and Mina told Eric and James to reel in their lines storms in the air, she muttered. Hold on, Eric said, wrestling with his fishing rod that was pulled into a tight bow. Just give me this one. I've got a monster, I swear. Dad, let it go, James said quietly. Maybe he could sense something, too. Despite his fit yesterday, he looked a little nervous. 
Eric grumbled and tugged on his fishing pole. We let him struggle for a couple more minutes before Mina took out a pocket knife and sliced off his line. Eric fell backwards into the boat, rocking us side to side. That thing's never coming up, Mina said. We're going home now. Oh, come on. Mrs. Kim turned the boat around and we began to putter back to the distant shoreline. Behind us, I could see the sky rapidly darkening. Thick, cold raindrops began to fall all around us. After a few minutes of racing for the shore, we weren't too far out, and I was starting to think we would make it just fine. And then the winds hit. In what seemed like the blink of an eye, the sky was full of water, and the waves crested higher than the prow of our boat. Mina shouted for us to hold on as the frigid salt water battered our faces and sloshed down our shoes. I gripped the edge of my seat tightly, a task made difficult by the wetness of everything, the raindrops and seawater strangely slippery as if there was something slimy mixed into everything. The boat violently rocked back and forth, every stroke threatening to send us sprawling. When the next wave crested before us, I could swear I saw a dark shape swimming in it. Nina wedged her feet underneath the railing, circling the bottom of the boat and loaded a long silver spear with a wicked barbed tip into her spear gun. Mrs. Kim shouted in Korean, and Mina shouted back. Masked by the chaos and cacophony, it seemed to appear silently. The boat tipped to the side for half a second, and a massive black fish with glistening scales shot out of the water and opened its gaping, oversized maw lined with rows of needle teeth. It wasn't quite as large as the one we'd seen at the market, but it still cleared five feet in length, I was sure. Its eyes were bright yellow with cavernous black pupils, and as the massive bulk of the creatures sailed toward our boat, they seemed to scan all of us with an unnerving intelligence. The eyes settled on James a split second before the Eniogogi slammed onto our boat, its scales slick against the seats. Its spiny tail flapped wildly, its jaws thrust forward, and its needle teeth flashed as they parted and snapped shut around James's skinny legs. The boat rocked, and I heard my son scream, and blood splattered into the water pulling at my feet. Mina leveled the spear gun at the fish, and with an ear-splitting crack, the spear lodged itself into its back between the rows of fins, but the wound just made the Eniogogi thrash and nearly dump us all off the boat. The boat tipped dangerously, and the monstrous fish slid against the slope of the seats until it slipped back into the water with a splash, taking James with it. Thunder roared. Eric screamed our son's name. I climbed up onto the railing without thinking, and before Mina could grab me and pull me back, dove into the water. The crashing waves flooded my nose, and the briny cold sea shot through my sinuses. I kicked my legs to get under the surface and forced my eyes open in the stinging mixture of white sea foam and blood. Underneath the waves, the water felt eerily calm and quiet. In the swirling dark currents ten feet down, I saw the pale face of my son and the glowing yellow eyes of the Eniogogi. Tiny bubbles came up from James's open mouth as he struggled weakly, his legs caught and bleeding in the Eniogogi's jaws. The Eniogogi unclenched its teeth for just a moment, and James began to float up toward me before the fish swam up underneath him, opened its jaws impossibly wide, and swallowed up his legs. The needle teeth stabbed into James all around his waist, long and sharp enough for there to be no hope for escape, yet short and dull enough not to sever his body in half. The moment the fish bit down, its yellow eyes turned milky white, and James stiffened. 
I watched because I was paralyzed and reality had yet to catch up to me. James's mouth stretched wide open and he let out an unearthly screech, a sound that somehow pierced the water though he couldn't have had any air left in his lungs. His eyes bulged and twisted and lit up like yellow lanterns. His arms spasmed and the fish that had swallowed up the bottom half of his body thrashed like James was still kicking his legs inside its gullet. And then, after some horrible, shuddering contortions, James and the creature began to move together. The fishtail and the rows of fins that had replaced James's legs cut effortlessly through the water. James blinked his yellow eyes and swept his pale, bloodless arms to his sides. I reached out my hand in a desperate attempt to get to him, but his bony white face no longer seemed to recognize me. As a muted splash broke the silence from above me and warm hands grabbed my sides, James turned, flapped the fins of his fish half, and swam away into the murky black depths. We've been in Pudgy for close to a month now. Eric learned to fish on the nighttime boats like all the widows and the widowers of Pudgy did when they lost their family and loved ones to the sea. The mature Aniogogi, the ones who found human hosts to attach to, only come out at night under the strings of ghostly white lights on the fishing boats. Every morning, when he comes back from the sea, I greet him in the hopes that he finally found James. The hollow look in his eyes grows with each passing day. Mina was right about fishing for Aniogogi being a harrowing experience. Though he is yet to find our son, Eric did help pull in an Aniogogi from the sea. One night, the barbed Kevlar nets digging into his palms and slicing up the yellow-eyed face of a once beautiful woman that emerged from the waves. At dawn, his crew brought the dead Eniogogi to shore, and I watched the town butcher pry open the jaws of the fish and pull out the bony, mummified remains of the woman's legs from its slimy throat. An old fisherman came down to the shore in the morning and claimed the body of his wife. The market vendors took the fish. I spent most of my days staring blankly out at the sea or sitting in the kitchen of Mina and Mrs. Kim's cabin and helping clean fish and clams. Mrs. Kim murmured something in Korean one day as we sat in a row shucking scallops. She says you should learn to move on, Mina said. She's right, you know. The night fishers caught my dad two months after he was taken. We were hopeful the whole time, didn't want to believe what everyone told us about the monster fish, but they were right. Once the eyes turn yellow, the human inside is gone. It's better to pull it from the water and kill it before it can multiply. I nodded numbly. No one said anything until we had gone through the entire basket of scallops. It was the fish, I muttered. The fish he flipped over on the plate, wasn't it? Mina shrugged. Sometimes we just need something to blame. Why do you eat the stuff? Hmm? The monsters. The, the Ennio. You can just call it mermaid meat. That's what it means anyway. The mermaid meat. Why do you eat it? Mina set aside the baskets of scallops and fiddled with her shucking knife. Like the question had never occurred to her. Maybe it's her own way of fighting back, she finally said. A cheeky little way of saying we won't give in. The ocean is cruel, Mrs. Gray. It takes from us what it wants and doesn't care if it breaks our hearts. Why would it? Outside the window in the distance, the sounds of the sea whispered on the rocky shore. In the weeks that I had spent in the village, their song had grown familiar. I couldn't leave, not without James somewhere out there. After all, Mina said softly, all of our hearts will belong to the waves in the end. 
and that's the end of my story. A very different take on mermaids for sure, one that I had never heard before, but I hope you guys enjoyed it. Please tune in next week. We'll have another one, probably something about black-eyed kids, because that's our next story.